Let's see. I'm going backwards. There we go. Ephesians chapter 5. I said 6. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're talking about the household codes. Uh, That's a term coined by Martin Luther, and it's kind of stuck for 500-some years. These are codes uh, that give structure to the most common relationships of a household. Uh, We're going to read through all of those codes in just a moment from chapter 5 and verse 21 through chapter 6 and verse 9. These codes are the answer to two questions. The first question, which drives the entire passage, is in chapter 5 and verse 17. The second question is in chapter 5 and verse 18. So in chapter 5, 17, it's, what is the Lord's will? And chapter 5, verse 17 is talking about, he's calling us to understanding the Lord's will. What is the Lord's will? The next verse provides the answer, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So then the question is, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It doesn't mean you raise your hands necessarily. It doesn't mean you run down aisles or swing banners. Uh, The Bible gives different answers in different places, but this is a very clear answer what it means to be filled, and we've already talked about it. But part of what it means is this idea of conducting yourself in these most common relationships in a way that is honoring to Christ. So this all of uh, these household codes flow out of those two questions. What is the Lord's will, and what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I laid the foundation for this last week. Last week, in a sense, was more topical. It gave you uh, some hermeneutical principles, that is, some interpretive principles for how should I understand this language about wives and husbands in the 21st century? How should we understand the language of children and fathers in the 21st century? Or what about servants and masters in the 21st century? So I laid groundwork last week. This is totally part two of that message. So if if you're not sure how I'm landing the plane and you want to know how I got there, you need to go back to the control tower last week and it kind of sets the parameters for how we're going to land the plane this week. I'm going to start by reading the entire passage. You can follow along. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and this is in chapter 5 and verse 21. What is the Lord's will? The answer is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, or wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even even as Christ is head of the church, his body. And is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then this seems like kind of a a downer after you've reached the highest altitude, love as Christ loved the church. Then he kind of brings it down to like, well, who can love like Christ loves the church? I mean, that should be your answer if you're like, yeah, I got this. You know, I'll talk to your wife. Uh, Because, I mean, 
We can't love, a husband can't love like Christ loves the church, but it doesn't mean we ought not to recognize that's the standard and the goal. But then he brings it down a notch and he says, all right, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And we're like, oh yeah, we got that. Uh, That's easier to understand. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because, because we are members of his body. Therefore, quoting Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, eyes up here, children. Are you ready? Are you looking? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It includes grandparents. It's in my paraphrase. Okay, I, well, I do have children here. I've got one child here. Children, child, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants. Now this is interesting because um, my wife and I attended Temple Baptist this morning. I was in, when I was in middle school, that's the church uh, my family went to. Not when my kids were in middle school, when I was in middle school. We went to Temple Baptist Church. And in Sunday school, he was dealing with the household codes, not in Ephesians, but in Colossians. And maybe that's the difference. Because then, it makes me wonder. So now I'm doing a little Bible. No, let's see. uh, It's very interesting. In my ESV Bible, my printed Bible, it says in verse 6 or verse 5, slaves. But when I printed it off my computer program, it renders that bond servants, which is very interesting to me. So even though you could have an ESV Bible, an English Standard Version Bible, it could read slaves or bond servants, depending on which edition you got. I've got both. So right now it says bond servants. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And then lastly, masters, do the same for them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right, so all this starts off with that little verse, verse 21, which introduces all of the household codes, and it starts off with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me talk first about what that does not mean. It does not mean that Paul all of a sudden is saying nobody has any authority over anybody else or any situation. He's not saying that all rule and regulation and law of order has passed. Everybody submits to everybody. That's not what he's saying. Paul is instructing the church now. And they're not coming back with, well, we think you should submit to what we think. And Paul's like, well, no, you submit to me what I think. 
And then parents are like, now you heard what he said, you, you obey me. And they're like, well, we were thinking, parents, you ought to submit to us. Because that's what I heard. Everybody submits to everybody else. And it would be chaos. And sometimes in culture, I think all they've ever read is verse 21. Because it is chaos. So he doesn't mean that there's no law or order. He doesn't mean that there's no authority structure. He doesn't mean there are no parameters. So let's talk about what he does mean when he says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Number one, A, first and broadly speaking, it is the rightful recognition that every person is called to submission in given situations. So the broad picture is there are circumstances for everybody here where you will be called to submit to somebody else who is here. Uh, And by the way, I suppose it's probably worth backing up and saying, Scripture is clear that we all are called to submit to those that are governing over us, so far as it is not in disobedience to Christ our Lord. Uh, Peter says that. Paul says that in several places. He talks about honoring and respecting and submitting to or obeying those in authority over us in government. Uh, We're even learning about that in Acts, in some sense, uh, a religious authority within the Jewish uh, kingdom or uh, Sanhedrin, the rulership exercise there, to respect them because they are put in position of authority over us. That's a true statement. I think another statement would be out of Hebrews, which reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's very clear, Scripture makes it very clear, we're to submit to those governing over us, and within the church community, those who are your leaders or rulers or overseers within the church. You're to submit to their authority. So that's not a situation where everybody submits to everybody, but there are specific circumstances where everyone sooner or later, is called to submit to somebody else. That is a true statement. So that the general term is A. The more specific term to Ephesians reads like this, B. Secondly, what does it mean to submit to one another? In the Ephesian context, submission to the Lord's will is required in a variety of circumstances. But that submission looks different depending on who is being addressed. So if you want to play this out in the context, it's wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, submit to the Lord by loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, submit to the Lord by obeying your parents. Fathers, submit to your Lord by not provoking your children to wrath. Servants, submit to your masters or submit to the Lord by obeying your masters. Masters, submit to the Lord by recognizing that you've got a master too that you'll give an account to one day. Everybody's submitting. But the role and the context of that submission depends on who he's addressing in those particular instances. And it's a little bit different. But it always falls under this greater category of submission. Now, it's very interesting, too, that up until this point, until the household codes, 
Paul has already given, beginning in chapter 4, lots of commands about talking the tr- telling the truth and not lying, not losing your temper. Uh, he's talked about sharing and being generous. He's talked about not being uh, immoral in your speech or in your conduct. He's given lots of commands, and they're general. They apply to anybody. But now with the household codes, he's narrowing it in on specific groups. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, I think by extension mothers, but it's the fathers that are specifically charged. Servants, bondservants, slaves, whatever is best taken there, and masters. All those groups. Now he's talking to specific groups with specific commands. Because it doesn't apply to everybody. Let's build on that. Let's build on that. Um, this is countercultural. What Paul is going to, what Paul does say in these verses is not, yeah, we've heard this before. This is always the way it is. What Paul is saying in the church is against culture because it's balanced. It's balanced. In most of world history, women didn't have the kind of rights and respect and treatment that Paul says husbands are required to give by submitting to Christ. They need to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And then he goes on and he builds on that. Layer upon layer. The world wasn't teaching that in the Roman world. Paul's bringing it into the church and saying we're not like the Roman world. That's not our standard. We're going to do it a different way. What Paul says is countercultural. We look at, in, a, in the modern mind oftentimes in America, we look at that and we see it's repressive. Most of world history would have said, this is liberating and refreshing. And that's the way it was intended to be. All right, general observations. Number one, we've got, I want, it's pretty clear, there's three... Three groupings of people. What's interesting about that, and my Bible even has headings for these groups. Uh, they're not things written by Paul, but by the editors of the Bible. For Beginning in verse 22, there's a subheading, wives and husbands. Chapter 6, verse 1, children and parents. And then chapter 6 and verse 5, slaves and masters. You've got these headings. And it's interesting because they kind of seem reversed. I kind of expect him to say husbands and wives or parents and children or masters and slaves. But that's not how he starts, which each one of those categories. He always starts with the one who is at least perceived to be weaker or more vulnerable based upon their position. Children are certainly more vulnerable and exposed to harm and hurt than their parents Wives are commonly more vulnerable and subject to hurt than the husband. Slaves are more subject and vulnerable because they're servants and slaves than the masters. But in each case, he starts with the weaker party. And there's a reason for that, I think. And it's a really neat reason. That's the good news. The bad news is, I can't believe it's ten minutes to six. Wow. So we'll see how far we get. Secondly, the next general observation is that Christ is the standard in all of these cases. 
And this is pretty clear. When he talks about wives in verse 22, uh, wives submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives in verse 25 as Christ loved. And then skipping down again to verse 29, Paul says still to husbands, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, cherishes it just as Christ does. Chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then it goes on. So, so Christ is the standard in each one of these cases. And that's kind of interesting. Um, he's making the point it's not a cultural standard. The standard is Christ. This lesson hit home to me before I came to fellowship a long time ago. So back when I was working at Red Lobster, I was uh, uh, working in food prep and recipes and stuff back in the day in Springfield. And I worked with, if you've ever read Proverbs, you'll read about a fool. I worked with a proverbial fool. He was a fool in, in every way that Proverbs defines a fool. This man was a fool. Uh, the things he said were foolish. His character was foolish. Uh, his morals were foolish. He was, he was just not a pleasant person to work with. And I worked pretty closely with him. And I treated him better than anybody else in the restaurant treated him. And honestly, I felt pretty good about that. Because everybody else treated him worse than I did. And then it so happened I was doing a Bible study, and I don't remember who I was teaching or what the circumstances were. The notes are handwritten from back before I had a computer. And uh, I looked at the, and I remember teaching the Bible study, and in 1 Peter, what I found out was that Christ is the standard, not culture. And I was very convicted by that. So even though I felt good that I treated him better than everybody else did, and no, my testimony wasn't harmed in the least with all the unbelievers I worked with. Because they thought, dude, you treat him pretty well. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. And I'm like, well, uh, I'm a Christian. That's what Christians do. I didn't really do that. I'm doing that for you. It's for a fact. <clears throat> but it may have come across like, but nobody blamed me. But then I read First Peter and I find out, like, I didn't treat this fool like Christ received unjust treatment at the hands of sinners. And I realized the bar was a lot higher than I imagined. So when Paul gives these instructions to wives and husbands, children and fathers, servants and masters, he's not saying, look, you need to do better than the world. All right? And that, would, that wouldn't be bad if we do better than the world. It'd be nice if our marriages were better than the world's. It would be nice if our children were better than the world's, but that's not the standard. The standard is Christ. And wives are to submit to their own husbands as to Christ. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So that's, that's the second general observation that Christ is the standard in all those things. Now let's talk um, a little bit more specifically about wives and husbands. It's the longest instruction to wives and husbands in the New Testament. I read that in a commentary, and I'm thinking, wouldn't it be the longest instruction in all of the Bible? I can't imagine there's somewhere else in the Bible that gives more specific or longer instructions than here. 
but I didn't take the time to make sure that's true. I've told you in the past that Colossians is the closest, it's a kissing cousin to Ephesians. Most of what Ephesians talks about, Colossians talks about. A lot of it, at any rate. And Colossians is usually a little briefer. So, when Colossians gives the household codes, and Paul wrote both letters under the same circumstances. He's a prisoner. He's writing from prison, being imprisoned. It's uh, not a horrible prison situation. He's, He's housebound, though. He writes a letter to the Colossians, then he sends a letter that goes, starts with the Ephesians. When he writes to the Colossians, he's got, in the ESV, he writes... 11 words to wives. And then he writes 11 more words to husbands. When he gets to writing to the uh, Ephesians, those 11 words to wives become 62 words. And those 11 words to husbands become 152 words. Now, I don't know if that's because he got some feedback And the Colossians thought they were doing pretty good. And he's like, I don't think they're getting it. So he expanded a lot further in Ephesians and really nailed it, spelled it out and detailed it. Here's what I'm talking about when I say you need to love your wives. And he lays it out and it's a little bit clearer than what it was before. So it's a very long set of instructions Some general principles. Number one, marriage and family is God's first ordained and ordered institution. Generally, theologians say there are three institutions ordered by the Lord, ordained by the Lord. Family, government, and the church. Those are the three institutions ordained by God and ordered by God. Families first. That's, That's the first institution ordained and ordered by God. And then government, which is a gracious, uh, meant to be a gracious uh, restraint on sin and evil after Noah, after the things that led to the, to the flood in Noah's day, and then the church. And if you want to think about it in terms of, it sounds like some other preacher would say, but the th- three things that are under attack, you can see it all over in our culture, are the family, government, and the church. They're attacked on every level. Whatever God said about the family in our culture is wrong. Because we're smarter and we've got it figured out a better way to do it. Whatever God says about government is wrong. And we've got a better way to live as a society. We don't have to live by God's principles or God's morals. And the church has certainly got it wrong. Because they say there's only one way, one mediator between a holy God and unholy sinners, and that's Christ, and that's certainly got to be wrong. The, the three institutions that God has ordained are the three things that Satan attacks, I think, right, right from the get-go. So that's principle number one. Number two, wives and husbands are equals, but assigned differing but not opposite roles. That's interesting. What I want you to see is he tells wives to submit to their husbands. What's the opposite of submission? I would think it's a word like rule, boss around, you know, you're in charge, tighten the belt. It's not that. It's not an opposite to submit. The the command given to husbands is love your wives as Christ loved the church. He tells children to obey. What's the opposite of obedience? Well, if somebody's obeying, somebody's bossing. 
Somebody's ordering around, but that's not the command he gives to fathers. He says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but raise them up in the, whatever the the language is used there, raise them up uh, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It seems much kinder, kinder, gentler, more highly motivated than just you get to boss people around. So the, the commands are The roles or the functions are different, but they're not opposites. What they are is complementary. They're complementary. And then lastly, the role of each person is clear, specific, and personal. He doesn't leave it up to whatever it means to you. The commands really are clear, specific, and personal. The word personal, the reason why I've added that word is because it doesn't say, now wives, your job is to make sure your husband loves you. And you just let everybody know. If he's not loving you like he should, you let everybody know it. And husbands, your job is not to make sure your wives submit to you. He gives a command to wives. He gives a command to husbands. And it's like, mind your own business. And you mind your own business. Your job is love. Your job is submit. Well, but you, but you, don't, you don't know what I have to put up with. No, your job is to love. Well, you don't know what he... Your job is to submit. Each one is given a command. It's not a 50-50 proposition. Marriage is not meant to be a 50-50 proposition. I've got the entire responsibility to love as Christ loved the church. And I'm not that good at it. My wife has got a job of submission. She's a lot better at that job than I am at mine. Uh, but each, per, each party is given their own responsibility and mind your own business and get to work as Christ loved the church. If you're having a hard time with it, understand how much Christ loved. And we'll build on that. Um, we're straight up at six. I think I'm good enough to go one step further. Verse 32 is the key to the whole deal, so far as I'm concerned. Verse 32 reads, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You might have come in here, I don't know what I would think. I mean, I went in a Sunday school class this morning. They're teaching Colossians, and I'm like, oh, here we go with the wives and husbands. Like, that's what i got to teach. Like, maybe I'll get some good pointers here. Uh, whatever the case may be. I don't know. You come into a service like that and you're like, yeah, I've heard this. Like, if you've been to a wedding, pretty good chance this might have been part of, the, part of the message or whatever the case may be. And, and verse 32, what it's saying is, all that Paul writes, all those many, many verses, the longest context in, I think, all of the Bible, addressed to wives and husbands, and he says, now here's the secret. I'm not really just talking about wives and husbands and good marriages. I'm not really just talking about good families. I'm talking about something that is so profound. It's Christ in the church. And this is the key to the whole deal. So far as I'm concerned, there's lots of writers that have brought this out. I have no idea who brought it out first. I think it goes back centuries, probably. But I know Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy Keller, did a good job. It looks like this. Number one, wives are to submit to their own husbands. And in doing so, they model Christ's submission to his father. Husbands are to love their wives. And in doing so, 
They model Christ's sacrificial love and headship for the church. What Paul is teaching is that husbands and wives both get to model and pattern their marriage after Christ's relationship with his church. And Christ submitted and humbled himself before he was exalted and became head over all. Which is, I think, why it starts with wives before it gives a command to husbands. Christ humbled himself, became obedient, became a servant, humbled himself, lived as a servant, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every other name. That at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. But he humbled himself and became a servant first. And he was exalted, his head after. Wives get to model their submission and love for Christ by becoming, in a sense, a servant and humbling themselves, putting themselves under. And husbands get to model why Christ did it. It's because he loved his church and he shed his blood. And both picture the relationship between Christ and his people. And it becomes what is really meant to be a very beautiful thing. There's lots of passages. Philippians is the passage about Christ humbling himself, coming as a man. In Matthew chapter 26, it's the when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying, you know, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In a sense, that's what wives may be called upon from time to time to model. You know, as Christ submitted himself to the will of his father, there may be times. I think in a good marriage, they should be pretty few and far between. All right? If you've got a marriage where every, every day, every week, you know, you're, you know, it's a relationship where the wife's feeling like she has to submit because you want to go a direction that, that she doesn't think is wise. I think that's probably a yellow flag, a warning, a warning sign. Because I think, at least my experience is, in a good relationship, your wife adds so much to the relationship. If you're not listening to her, I think you're the proverbial fool. So you listen to that, but there may be occasions where you want to go two different directions. And then your wife, in a good relationship, is able to say, nevertheless, not my will, but my husband's will be done. That's modeling what Christ did in the garden. For husbands, it looks like uh, some of these passages. Where Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 22, I'll read some of those verses. They read like this. Luke chapter 22, a dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines a table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So husbands get the opportunity to be the number one servant in the household. Because that's what Christ was. 
He's the head. He's the Lord. He's the master. And so husbands get to follow that lead. Not only do you get to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and you're willing to lay down your life, but it means you get to serve. I was hoping, my wife told me she was going to be in the nursery. I'm sorry that she's here to have to hear all this. (laughs) She's like, yeah, so you do know what it says. You know, you've got passages like John chapter 13, where Jesus is the one who stooped to wash his disciples' feet. He's the number one servant. Husbands get the job of being number one servant, the one to serve everybody else as the head. And that's the way it's meant to be, because it all pictures the relationship between Christ and his church. What are your comments and questions? we got got to get you on the microphone. You ready? myself. Um, on your slide just before that with the three columns, how does oh. the definition of submit go along with wives and husbands are equal? If people are... I, I'm, I'm confused by that. Okay. Uh, I mean, probably the classic explanation is that, is that the son is equal to the father. There, he, is, he, is as whole, he is as truly God as the father is God. But the son submitted himself to his father's will. So just the fact that the son submit, submitted to the father's will, doesn't make him not an equal. But it means that that was the function that he played in the redemption of man. Does that make sense? You should be on the microphone. Does that not jeopardize the other scriptures where it says the man is the head of the household, no. the husband is the head of the household? Because I don't how think do you, so. I don't think so. It just doesn't seem to... It seems like they're contrary to each other or opposite instead of complementary. And not, uh, I'm not disagreeing with your, your statement yeah. of defining I would, them. The, equ- the equality comes in the fact... I think it goes back to part of the groundwork I laid last week that in Genesis, you know, the two statements that are complementary... On, on God creating man. And in Genesis 1, he created, uh, however it says, he created them uh, male and female uh, in the image of God in Genesis chapter 1. And then in Genesis 2, you find out, well, actually, Adam was created before Eve was created. She actually was created after, not exactly the same time. So she actually came from man But in Genesis 1, what he wants to establish is there's an equality between male and female. In my creating them, they are equally created in the image of God. They're equally created by God's power and God's wisdom. But then in Genesis 2, there's an order to it to demonstrate the headship of the husband in the home. So I I don't see them as contradictory. So the equals is more of them being... um, Equal value. Likeness of... They're both made in God's image. That that they are both made in God's image. And that they are as eternal beings. They both are equal. Equal That she is not property. But their equality in spiritual personhood. Their their function, assigned function, is different. But the roles... When you say... um, Differing roles, the roles would be the headship of the home. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Oh, I, I thought, okay. Somebody else, would, Sarah's got the mic. 
There it is. Pass it over to Carrie. Throw it at her. No, don't throw it at her. Pass it. Okay, so I'm just thinking that it's so easy to find any kind of, like, secular or not secular information that says my position is right as far as as a wife or his as a husband, whatever. So just keep thinking, is is as a wife, if we submit even under, like, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, is is there, is that, I mean, it's, it's a hard way to ask. Is that obedience or is that just grunting through? What do you think? Well, I want permission to grunt through. That's what I think. I'm thinking if I take these verses as a whole, I think the idea is it's not just the outward conformity action, but it's also the attitude of the heart. Because I think that's not only I think that's not only reflected in this passage as a whole, I think it's reflected in the Bible as a whole. God wants more than just outward conformity to a certain standard he also wants the attitude of the heart to correspond eve is dying for the microphone okay my my husband and i talk about this all the time not specifically in wives and husbands but in following christ and i feel like there are times though where the lord has grace for us and following with discipline even if we don't like it, I feel like he still sees that and is pleased by us, even though a little part of us is like, oh, I don't, don't want to. So yeah, I don't know I that it means time you, for both. I don't know that it doesn't mean yeah, you can't kidding. like the decision that's yeah. being made, but you're, uh, somebody just gave a really good, ex- uh, maybe it was in at Temple Baptist this morning. I think he gave an example where uh, he's, he, he said, made the same point that he and his wife, for the most part, are always on the same page. But there was there was one particular instance where they weren't. Uh, he made a decision. She submitted to that decision. And he said, I mean, she's, I don't know how it wound up coming out. But she didn't think it was the right decision. She thought it was, like, just not a very good decision. Mm-hmm. But she didn't undermine him in that. Yeah. So I think it's part of that. You can still think, I think it was not the right, I don't think it was the best decision to make in this situation. But she didn't undermine him. You know, she didn't try to jeopardize it or sabotage that decision just to prove that she was right. I think that is a graciousness uh, that reflects an attitude of the heart. But it doesn't mean your mind's necessarily changed. Yeah, that's true. Somebody else? Cindy. Oh, you've got to do a bomb now. A Hail Mary. <laughs> 